have my clicker, I do. So we're in our last, the last installment of our after series. We've been talking about how we live after the crucifixion. And today we're gonna talk about the ascension, um, which we find recorded in Acts chapter one. And it begins with a dedication, right? It begins with a dedication to a guy named Theophilus. It says, my dear Theophilus. Now, I don't know if you read the dedications in books, but you should because it gives you a little bit of a little bit of a sense of the author. Is it this a funny person? Is this somebody who's very serious, just clinical listing, you know, who it is? My dad, when he wrote his first book, he, uh, he dedicated it to earlobes. Yeah, that's sweet. Um, my mom was mad at him. She's like, why did you dedicate your book to earlobes? And he's like, I meant you. Your earlobes are a euphemism for you. And she's like, I didn't know that. So he always dedicated it to actual people from then on, the rest of the books that he wrote. Um, so I thought we'd go through a, a few dedications just to get us into the, to the, the feeling of dedication, right? This book is dedicated to my father, Joseph Hill Evans, with love. Actually, dad doesn't read fiction. So if someone doesn't tell him about this, he will never know. Tad Williams says that in his book, City of Gold and Shadow. There's this one that we couldn't find the source for, but it says, dedicated to everyone who wonders if I'm writing about them. I am. <laughs> um, Dirk Gently, his book, Holistic, Holistic Detective Agency, wrote this, to my mother who liked the bit about the horse. <laughs> and then the last one, Juan Gautista in his book, Makbara, says, to those who inspired it and will not read it, right? Luke, the author of Acts, writes to someone he knows or to someone who represents us all. There's been some, there's been some argument amongst um, common, commentators of Scripture that Theophilus was not an actual person. It was a model for the church. Um, I'm not sure if that's true. It could have been a real person, but um, he writes like this. In the Greek, it sounds a little more, bit more like a dedication, but he says, in my first book, Theophilus, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. It's an explanation of the first book as well, right? So he's saying, I, I told you everything that Jesus did until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So it records the continued work of Jesus until the ascension, even though that shows up in chapter one of the book of Acts. And then it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the rest of the book of Acts, as we know the Holy Spirit moving in the early church specifically after Pentecost. We're not going to get to Pentecost, even though it plays a role in today's sermon. So he continues on. Um, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, there's a bunch of stuff going on in this particular text. First of all, it is an affirmation of the death of Jesus, because it says, um, you know, that he suffered and died. So it's an affirmation of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. It is also an affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus, a physical bodily resurrection, right? And sometimes... Sometimes in the, in the long history of Christianity, there has been movements towards a belief in the physical body resurrection of Jesus. And then sometimes, and certainly in some ideologies and some theologies, there's this idea that it's kind of a metaphor and that Jesus didn't really bodily resurrect. This seems to be saying, nope, in body, real person, we saw him afterwards, this is really important. 
right? Because his resurrection and the implications of that resurrection become the heart of the apostles' message for the rest of the book of Acts, which we're not studying today, but it's important. And it's this affirmation. Also, he mentions 40 days, which has theological significance. We know that we see 40 days early on in Scripture. In the, um, in the study of Noah and the ark, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. That's kind of, a, that's kind of a, um, a metaphor for just a really long time. And then we see again in Jesus' story, or well, first of all, in Moses' story, when he's on Sinai for 40 days. Then we see in Jesus' story, when he's out in the wilderness for 40 days, obviously 40 days means something. It means it was a while. He was there. And it has particular significance, right? But... He also mentions in this text the kingdom of God. It's mentioned and it refers to God's dominion. It doesn't refer to the empire of God. It refers to the, the, to the kingdom or the dominion of God. This is grace and righteousness that goes throughout the whole earth, driven by the Holy Spirit, however, executed by us, right? By the early church and by the church today. This is how God's kingdom grows, expands, and is recognized by the love, grace, and mercy that we give to the rest of the world. Really, really important. So he continues on in this narrative in verse 4 saying, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised, as I told you before. And of course, we're talking about this new spirit, the Holy Spirit. His spirit is to come, and it's to come abundantly. The Holy Spirit is given to help them to be effective in their mission. We see this in John 14, verse 26, where he says, well, I'm going to give you a spirit so that you can, um, you can remember all things and learn all things, because it will teach you all the things that you need to remember. And then he says this to his disciples, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see, what we've got is they are living after the crucifixion and they're wondering what's next. And Jesus is telling them what's next. And he reminds them that he was baptized by John at the inauguration or the beginning of his ministry. They are to be baptized as well, but this time not by water, by the Holy Spirit, which is even better than the baptism that Jesus actually received. So the disciples are trying to manage all this and figure it all out. And they're like, okay, this sounds pretty good. It sounds like things are going to get better than they are. And so they asked Jesus a question. It's a fascinating question. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? This is not what he's talking about. After three years, you would have thought that they would have figured out what Jesus was talking about. But they keep thinking he's going to restore Israel and kick out the Romans. That's what they just assume is going to happen because that's salvation for them, right? You got to remember, up until Jesus, the idea of God for the Hebrews was a national God. It wasn't a God for the whole world. It was a, it was a monotheistic God for them. And that's pretty, pretty along the lines of all ancient traditions, Right? In the ancient world, every nation had a God, and that God cared about that nation, not the other nation. And so now we see Jesus saying, I'm actually God of everyone. There's one God, and, and I'm part of it, and it's for everyone. And they just couldn't get their heads around it. So they're like, is it time? Is it, are we ready? This is like an adventure and missing the point, right? They couldn't get it, and they didn't want to get it, right? There's just this idea that, you know, 
I guess they were just thinking about empires, not really kingdoms, right? They were thinking about the empire of Israel and they thought like if we can get the Romans out of there, that Roman empire out, then we can have our own empire. But Jesus wasn't thinking about empires. Jesus was thinking about the kingdom of God, right? He was into kingdom building and he wanted to give them the Holy Spirit in order to help them in the work. But they wanted the schedule of how this is going to happen. They wanted to know when this would happen. And we all want to know when big things are going to happen, right? So Jesus says this to them. The Father alone has authority to set those dates and times. And they're not for you to know. Jesus reminds them that, like, this is not your business. God's going to go about God's business and do it when and how he feels like he's going to do. Don't worry about that. If we knew the date, we would act very differently in the run-up. I don't know if you know this, but Seventh-day Adventists, our faith tradition, has a bit of a history with date setting and time setting. You familiar with that? Yeah, we were very specific, too. We were like, Thursday. Thursday, October 22, 1844. That's the day he's coming. We were wrong, and now we celebrate the great disappointment. <laughs> Still weird to me. Still weird. Right? But the problem is sometimes knowing the end date ruins everything else. Right? When you know the culmination date of something, when you know something's about to happen, like your whole life is just focused on that, and you kind of forget to live. You know when you've got a big trip coming up? And like everything you do is just to like pack and just, and then, you know, you go sit in the airport. You're not really doing anything. You're waiting for life to start. And I think this is Jesus going, hey, don't wait. You need to start now. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit now so you can live with the Holy Spirit. Don't wait till the end. In fact, you don't even know when it's going to come. So don't just base your whole life on that moment when you think it's going to happen. You know, and it's funny because our faith tradition began like that. But afterwards, we were like, you know what? We need to get about the business of, that God is giving us, the calling that God is giving us. We need to go do some things after that. We were a very industrious church um, early on in particular, right? So then Jesus is like, hey, it's not for you to know the date or the time or the hour. That's God's business. Don't worry about it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. A bunch of stuff happening in this text too, right? The first thing he says is you'll receive power, <clears throat> or the Greek word dunamis, right? Which is where our word dynamite comes from, if you can connote that idea of power together, right? So it can be miracles. Certainly, God can give you the power to do miracles. But it's also the ability of God to give people the ability to carry out their purposes or agency that God gives us. Right? So it's not just like you can work miracles when you receive the Holy Spirit. It is that God is empowering you to do the work of the mission that he's called you to do. And, and it says, what is the work that we've called you to do? To be witnesses. Right? They have seen him and they are now sent to tell the world about him. And not just to tell about his love for us, but to tell about his love for us, his crucifixion and sacrifice for us, and his resurrection, that he is now a living God. It's very specific. And then he doesn't just tell you what you're going to do. He tells you how you're going to do it. He says, first of all, you got to start at home, Jerusalem, right? That's where they lived. That was their home. So I'm going to ask you this question. How do you start to witness at home? You don't really have to go anywhere to make it happen, but how do you witness at home? And I understand when I talk about witnessing, I'm not talking about just going and telling someone your story of conversion, which is great, and we should all certainly testify to that when we can. However, it's about the way you live your life so that people may know who Jesus is. 
It's about the way that you love people, the way that you interact with people, the way you tip your servers. Let's get that granular on it, right? When you go 15%, you should go 18%, right? Listen, my, my, my mom... My mom is married to this guy, and he's, he's so great. I may have told you about this before. He's such a generous man. He will sometimes tip twice the cost of the meal. Yeah, no. Like, do that math, right? And my mom's always like, you know, the people love us at these restaurants. They just, they, they think we're so sweet. I'm like, yes, mom. There's a reason they love you. <laughs> but it's not that. I mean, what it does is that generosity just shows love, Right? And that's tangible. But when I talk about witnessing, I'm not just saying speaking the name of Christ in somebody's life. I'm talking about living the name and the love of Christ into somebody's life. Right? But it begins at home. And then Jesus says, okay, so sort that out. And then also Judea, which is your neighborhood. Right? It's the place where you live, the place where you work, the place where you go to the grocery store. It's the coffee shop that you go to. It's those places where you interact with people that you might have some influence over because you're in proximity to them. So we start at home with the way that we treat our family and the people that we love. And then we expand it to the way that we treat those that we have influence with over and we are in proximity with. But then he says, and Samaria. Now, if you know ancient history, you know that the Judeans and the Samaritans not big fans of one another, right? They didn't actually like each other. So this is now saying go to places where you might not feel comfortable, places where you might not live that may not even like you and you may not even like them. How do you live in love with those people and around those people as well? It starts at home with the way that you care about one another. It expands to your broader circle of influence. It moves into places where you may not even be welcome, but are still called to love. And then it's called to the ends of the earth, right? This is farther. This is those unusual places that God is calling you. You know, when you find yourself in some weird place that you never thought you were, and you're in a weird conversation in an Uber cab with some guy, and you go, oh, I'm a pastor. This probably doesn't happen to you as much. Um, and I go, this happened to me. I'll sit down and get in a, oh, how are you doing today? Good. What do you do? I'm a pastor. That conversation is going to be 20 minutes longer. Like, he's going to take a long way around because we have a different kind of conversation. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the whole world. Where should you start? It sounds like a stupid question. But we are way more comfortable going to the ends of the earth than sometimes loving at home. And we have got to start loving at home, right? Our kids are going through massive mental health issues for what's gone on over the past years, and we've got to love them differently than we have before. We've got to get them the help that they need, right? We've got to stop domestic abuse completely. We've got to take care of one another in different ways than we have before. And domestic abuse is not just hitting someone. It's also being on your phone so much that you don't recognize your partner anymore, right? There's a million different ways in which we can do better at loving one another at home. And then broadening, right, to our community and how we care for our community. And then going to Samaria. I think a perfect example of Samaria in this area is the 91 freeway. <laughs> right? Nobody wants to be there and nobody likes each other while you're there. Right? How do you love on the 91? You answered that question, you're a long ways towards heaven, I think. Um, it was shut down this morning. I was very angry. Um, anyway. Jesus says this, and he gives them a calling. He says, you're to go testify to me, you're to go witness for me to this world, and then 
And Luke has kind of an economy of words, right? He doesn't waste a lot of words because it says, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. Like, that's it. Jesus is like, go take care of people, go witness to me, go witness for me, about me to the world and about God. And then he leaves and he goes up. And because we believe in the physical bodily resurrection, we actually believe that he's pulled up, however that works, right? God's tractor beam moving him up. You know, you want to know the theological word for it? It's rapture. Yeah, he's taken up. That's what it means. So we as Adventists actually believe in the rapture which some of you are laughing, we don't believe in the secret rapture where people just disappear. That's different. That's a different church. But, but we believe that people are taken up, and then we believe that Jesus is going to come back down in that same bodily fashion, right? So as they strain to see him, this is why it's obviously physical. Like, have, have you ever left, like, let a balloon go? Have you? Don't do it. It's bad for the environment. But if you have... Right? What we do is we look at it and we watch it and you try to watch it as far and as long as you can. So you're just up there looking at it for way longer than you should. And after a while, you're just seeing spots, but you think it's the balloon. It's not anymore, but you know. Um, then a fascinating thing happens, right? Suddenly, two white-robed men stood among them. So they're all looking up like this and the guys go, hey, which had to be a little shocking. Men of Galilee, what in the world are you doing standing here staring into heaven? Jesus is gone, right? He's been taken away. Someday he'll return in the same way you saw him go, but not now. You got work to do because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you got to go to Jerusalem. You got to go to Judea. You got to go to Samaria. You got to go to the ends of the earth. And then he takes off. And they were standing there looking and they're like, hey, he just said go. I mean, that's a paraphrase, obviously, but it's kind of the way it shows up in scripture, right? And again, with an economy of words, Luke tells us what happened. So the apostles return to Jerusalem. They're like, all right. And they start going back to Jerusalem. It's a distance of about half a mile. The reason why that's important is because that's about as far as you can walk on Sabbath. All right, so they go, okay, I guess we're going home. But I wonder about the conversation. And, and we don't get any, any hints from scripture about the conversation. But what would they have talked about? Right? If you can put yourself in that moment. Would you, would you talk about the loss of Jesus? Man, I'm just really going to miss him. I really wish he was here. Was it, that? was it talking about the anticipation of, okay, he's gone. What does that mean for us now? He said the Holy Spirit was going to come, but what does that mean? And when is that going to happen? I don't even know. Were they just quietly reflecting as they were walking together? How would you feel? Because, of course, there's a sense of loss, but there's also the sense of mission and calling. So Luke just jumps into it and says, when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room in the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. And then he just gives us context of who was there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. He says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer because you have to understand before this, they were living in the after of the, of the resurrection. Now they're living in the after of the ascension, and things have changed again. And what has changed is that they know that the Holy Spirit is going to be gifted to them. They don't know when, they don't know how, and we find that out in the second chapter of Acts when we talk about Pentecost, right? But we're not there yet. 
So this is a moment when they were like, okay, we've been called to go out, but we haven't quite yet been commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go out. So we're living in the after of the calling, but not sure what to do. So the only thing they knew what to do was to get down and pray and ask that God would make it clear of what they were supposed to do and where they're supposed to go. If you're, if you're unclear on what happens afterward, read the whole of the book of Acts. They went in and changed the world. But this moment, they're waiting, waiting for the commissioning of the Holy Spirit, right? Along with Mary, mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. They had not, they had been called, but perhaps they were not yet feeling the commissioning. They were hesitant, and chances are they felt less than whole. During this time, about 120 believers were together in one place. Now, the end of this text is a, is a message that Peter gives to these people. We're not going to read it. It's not, it's not directly related to what we're talking about today. But um, <clears throat> the reason I'm not reading this speech is that it's, and, and you should go read it. It's an interesting speech. But he's basically like, hey, Judas was a bit of a problem. He gave up Jesus. He died in a field with his intestines hanging out. Don't be like Judas. That's a short paraphrase. But he was beginning to understand his call. Right? This is the first speech that we really see Peter beginning to give. He's taking some leadership. He's beginning to realize that that calling has to be acted upon. He's beginning to realize that what God has asked him to do has to take the form of action. Or we just heard God's voice but didn't do anything with God's voice. And so he begins to give a speech. Like I said, we're not going over that speech. But you got to think about this. I, th I, think, I think a lot of us do feel called, and that's the question I would ask, right? Do you feel called? I think a lot of us have actually felt called. We felt called to go into the world. We've heard that we need to go to Jerusalem, that we need to go to Judea, that we need to go to Samaria, that we need to go to the ends of the earth. We don't exactly know if it's okay for us to do it because we haven't yet been commissioned by the Holy Spirit. If you know the story of Pentecost, you know that they were gathered in one room, they were praying, and they hear this rushing wind, this loud sound, and then it says the Holy Spirit descended like tongues of fire, which is a fascinating turn of phrase because if you see art history, Christian art, Christian art history over the, the last two millennia, you realize that it's really hard to to visualize what tongues of fire coming and landing on people are. There's some weird representations of it. But it was this moment where they felt the Holy Spirit, they, they, they recognized the Holy Spirit, and they moved because the Holy Spirit gave them the movement. That's the whole rest of the book of Acts. Many of us feel called to do what God has asked us to do, but we do not yet feel commissioned to go. So the first question is, do you feel called? Do you believe that God called you to do something specific? Now, you may say, well, I, maybe, I don't know. Let me just answer that question for you. You are absolutely called. You are called to Jerusalem. You may be called to Judea. You may be called to Samaria. Or you may be called to the ends of the earth. But that call has definitely been loud and clear. It's through Scripture all over. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore into all the world, teaching, preaching, baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what we've been called to do. So you have been called. The question is, have you been commissioned? Have you felt the Holy Spirit now getting you to move in action? This is the harder part. Harder for a couple of reasons. Number one, not a lot of tongues of fire falling from the ceiling. 
right? That would be easy. But I wonder if some of us feel like this. I wonder if some of us know we're supposed to be doing something, even if we're not 100% sure what that is, and our hearts are just not 100% settled. We have this feeling like, I could be doing maybe more. I should be maybe getting engaged at church or at another ministry or somewhere that I'm supposed to be doing something. I should speak a little bit differently when it comes to someone asking me about whether or not I'm a Christian or whether or not I believe in something, right? This, this constant unsettling of your heart, I believe that's the commissioning of the Holy Spirit. It's a lot quieter than a rushing wind and a tongue of fire, but it is no less real and present in your life. If you've been living your life after the calling, but before the commissioning, let me help you understand this now. You have been commissioned by the Holy Spirit. When you pray, when you sing, when people lay hands on you, when they see the ministry that you do, that call is confirmed in community and you are commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go. Because the Holy Spirit was not given to you so that you would have the power to sit. Because that's easy. And you don't need much power to sit. The Holy Spirit has been given to you in all the power of God so that you might reveal Jesus Christ to the world through the way that you love, through the way that you care for people, through the words that you say, the way that you drive, the way that you tip, the way that you smile, the way that you interact with those around you, the way that you love your kids and your family and your nieces and nephews and their friends. You've been commissioned to do this and given all power to do this. The only question really remains is this, will you go? And I got to tell you, being in Australia was fascinating because of the amount of people, like I said, who came up and said, you are our church and we've started meeting in a small group or we've started, you know, we, we, we want to do things differently here. And, and you know, we, we hear, like, it's not so much that we plant churches, but we partner with people who want to plant churches, people who recognize that they've been called to Judea or Jerusalem or Samaria. And, and sometimes their calling is nothing but opening up their front door and inviting friends in to watch a worship service, to engage in conversation with our series guides, to help grow the kingdom of God that way. It's, it's really pretty fascinating to watch this happen over and over and over again. Every week, more people call us. And I'm not saying that to scratch my back. I'm saying that because there are people who are hearing the call of God we didn't, when we started this, we didn't think, hey, we want to, you know, plant churches. We just, in fact, I think I just was standing here and I said, if you feel the call of God in your life, we want to help you do what God is calling you to do. And that's the form that it's taken. And I got to tell you, man, it's amazing to me when somebody will open up their home, invite people they know and people they don't know into their house so that they can witness to who God is. And we're seeing groups grow and we're seeing churches grow out of this. That's the power of the Holy Spirit and people's willingness to be commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go. And sometimes going is staying and creating a place of belonging where you live. Sometimes going is just welcoming people into your own home with hospitality and growing the kingdom of God through building relationships that, that grow slowly, but do grow. So I don't know what God is calling you to, but know that you have been called. 
And I don't know what you're waiting for, but know that you have been commissioned by the Holy Spirit and given all the power and authority that God gives through the power of the Holy Spirit to go and do the work that God is calling you to do. It may be that you're the guy or the woman who goes and plants churches and grows communities of belonging and changes the world or changes the city. And you may be the person that God brings the right person into your home and they meet Jesus and that's it. But that was what you were called to for that person right then. And it's just as important as anything else that anyone's called to. So I can't wait to see what God is gonna do with you and through you and for you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he had to go to give us space to do the work. Because if he was still here physically, we'd be just waiting for him. He'd be doing all the healing. He'd be doing all the compassion. He'd be doing all the mercy. But he knew that he needed to go up to heaven so that he could give us the Holy Spirit and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit for us to do the work. So while we lost Jesus when he went to heaven, we gain a calling, a commissioning, and a chosenness because God has chosen you to move into those spaces. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you like we do. I just want to thank you for being the God that loved us so much you were willing to leave, but give us something so powerful to integrate and interact with our lives. Lord, let us be those people who go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth because it's the calling that you gave us and the commissioning that you sent us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we know that we don't do this alone. We've never walked in any space alone because you have made sure that our companion, our helper, our counselor is here with us every day. Lord, for those of us who are living after the call, make that commissioning clear. For those of us who are living after the commissioning, Give us the power to move. In your name I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.